This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to be with you today. We're kicking off a new series called Playlist, where we'll take modern songs, but we'll kind of wrap them around a book of the Bible from the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. We started this last year. By the time we're done with this, we'll be through almost all of those books of the Bible. Now, as we get started today, I was thinking just about where many of you might be coming from as we look at the Old Testament book of Amos. You might be thinking, and this is thousands of years old. How will this ever really speak to my life as a modern person? I mean, in the day of Amos, his nation was divided. People were very prosperous. Lots of spiritual activity, but people were far away from God. I don't know if you just hear those things and see what I see, but that looks a lot like our modern culture. So this book that is literally hundreds of years old, still speaking out of the thousands of years of its heritage to where we are today. So we're going to begin by reading a little excerpt from Amos chapter 1 and then going to really which is the the heart of the book, Amos chapter 3. So would you stand as we honor God in the reading of His Word? Just so you know, for the next few weeks, we're going to get real, okay? Like these books are heavy hitters. So you're going to sense that today as we read the Word of God together, beginning in verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoshaphat, was the king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Then, then, then we fast forward to Amos chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, an enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones and a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord Almighty, that on the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house and the houses adorned with ivory and 
will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Can we pray together as we get ready to dive into this? Father, thank you for your word. God, would you help us today to fix the eyes of our heart on you, to receive in this moment what you have to give, to surrender those things that we've stolen and repent and turn to you in this moment. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen and amen. Touch your neighbor as you're taking a seat and say, this is about to get real. Mm. I don't know if y'all could tell that from that scripture we just read, but it is about to get real. This song for today is a oldie but a goodie. It comes from 1969. It's by Credence Clearwater Revival. And every week throughout this series, we're going to feature, some of y'all don't remember this, but there was actually a time when MTV and VH1 showed music videos. They don't do that anymore, apparently. I don't know. haven't watched it in years. But we're going to show some old-style VH1 pop-up videos from the songs that are featured each week. So let's get started today as we watch the video for Fortunate Son. By John Fogarty and Credence Clearwater Revival in September of 1969. It was the height of the Vietnam conflict. John Fogarty, the songwriter, had been drafted and was earlier in the the 60s, was going to go into the service and he recalled on The Voice, the TV show in 2015, that now I was drafted and they're making me fight. This is all boiling inside of me and I sat down on the edge of my bed and it came out. It ain't me. It ain't me. I ain't no senator's son. Now you might be wondering, what does that mean? I'm no senator's son. He actually goes on to explain that quote in a book, a memoir that he released the very same year. He said, you'd hear about the son of a congressman who's given a deferment or a choice position in the military. They seem privileged, and whether they liked it or not, these people were symbolic in a sense that they weren't being touched by what their parents were doing. They weren't being affected like the rest of us. Fortunate Son is unique in the fact that it's a protest song against the Vietnam War, but it also stood in solidarity with those who had been drafted into the war. And the setting for this song and the setting for the book of Amos were remarkably similar. Let me give you three ways today that the setting in the late 1960s, the setting that we find ourselves in today, and the setting of this book that's literally almost 800 years before Christ, were similar. Number one, if you're taking notes, this is there. The nation was divided. The nation was divided. I mean, today, it's easy to look around and to say that I feel like our nation is divided. You, you either have to be you know, a, a Republican or a Democrat. You're a liberal or a conservative. You're on this side or you're on this side. It's divided. In CCR's day, the late 1960s, it was divided over the Vietnam conflict. I mean, there were those on one side that were saying, well, we're fighting the communist in Vietnam. And then there were others who were saying, no, this, isn't our, this is a civil war. Why are we there? In 
Amos is that it was literally the truth that the nation was divided. This is a map of Israel. And so in the day and age of Amos, the kingdom of God has now divided in two. It's the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. God brought this nation into prominence under King David and then under King Solomon, his son, it grew to affluence. But then after Solomon, the leaders weren't able really to keep it in one controlled entity and so it divided into two. But just speaking of that, Jesus literally references what has happened in their history in Luke 11 when he says the kingdom divided itself against itself will be ruined. And some of us have, have failed to see in our lives that division is a tactic. Division literally means two visions. Which is why in our day and age, you, you've got to be Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. You had to be for the Vietnam conflict or against the Vietnam conflict. Can I just say this? The enemy wants to divide. You have an enemy. And the tactic of the enemy is posturing things in such a way where it's either this or that. Can I just say that? It's not always this or that. I remember a time my wife and I were eating lunch with a family and the, the mom of that family, she could cook. Y'all ever been over somebody's house, could cook? You know, you're just excited about going to their house because you know the food is going to be good. And she was famous for her banana pudding. I mean, makes me tear up thinking about how good it was. I love some banana pudding. I love some good banana pudding. And it came dessert time, and she had made another dessert. And they asked my wife, which one do you want? And my wife went, I want both. Why are you trying to tell me i got to choose one? Can't I just say I want both of them? The enemy's tactic is to divide, to get us thinking that if they're on that side, they're against me. We can never, the, the, if you've noticed this, even in our modern culture, middle ground has vanished. In Romans chapter 16, as the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church in Rome, he's watch out for those people who try to stir up division who try to bring up topics and it gets one person on one side and another one, instead of trying to find commonality and common ground, watch out. Then in Titus 3, he says, no, get away from them. Avoid them. Don't spend time with them. The enemy wants to divide. And in the day of Amos, the, the, literally the nation was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, just like in the late 1960s, the nation was fractured. Here's another thing that's really common. Number two, the nation was actively religious, but far from God Himself. I mean, just think about the, the civil movements, the cultural movements of the late 1960s. A lot of spirituality, a lot of meditation, a lot of crystals, and a lot of, uh, a lot of prayer, but not to any specific God. And, you know, there's a, such a thing as a spirituality that's active, but it is not significant. 
If you paid attention as we read through, one of the things that Amos says in Amos chapter 3 is he said, I will tear down the altar at Bethel. And some of us might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't understand. Why would God ever tear down an altar that was built to worship him? And I need to show you the kingdoms again just to point this out. Okay, look at this. So you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, and what happened is that when Jeroboam the first came to power in the northern kingdom, he realized if our people are going to go worship as God has directed them to do, they're going to go down to Jerusalem. Which means that all of their commerce, all of their, their, when they go to a hotel or they go to a restaurant, all the, the profitability of that, tra- all of it's going to go to the southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam said, no, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the exact blueprints used to build the altar at Solomon's temple and we're going to build two of them. We're going to build one in Bethel, which is the extreme south, And then we're going to build one in Dan to the north. See, what's happening is that in the day of Amos, people are are in religious activities. They're doing things that looks good. It looks like I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But they're far away from God. Y'all need to hear me. You come church every Sunday and not be close to God. You can. You can be somebody who prays. See, what had happened is the king had built a kingdom to serve that king, not the true king. It was political. We live in a day and age where there's a lot of spiritual activity. A lot of people who confess, I believe in God. But there's not a lot of substance behind it. Just statistically, in the United States, 80% of people say, I believe in God. 60% say, I'm a Christian. Only 30% go to church regularly. And in that question, it was, do you go at least once a month? And then only 17% said they went to church on a regular basis. See, there's a lot of people who say, I believe in God. They're praying when they take a math test. Y'all remember school? Right, yeah. They used to say we're going to get rid of prayer in school. As long as there's math tests, there's going to be prayer in school. You know what I'm saying? I hated math. I was no good at it. Some of y'all pray when you lose your job, when you think something's going on with your kids, when you, you feel lonely, spiritual activity. But religious activity does not equal spiritual significance. See, some of us can be very active religiously, but not have significant spiritual lives. There's, there's a difference between taking your Bible and just playing some Bible roulette. Y'all ever do that? You just like, I don't know what's going to open to. I just hope it'll bless me, you know? And studying the Bible. Actually, like spending time and getting into a book of the Bible, ride, reading a commentary on it, learning who wrote it, learning about the period of time. There's a difference There's a difference between just praying, y'all listen to me, when you've lost your job or when something's going on with your kids and making making the decision, God, I'm going to be faithful in prayer. I mean, praying when things are going well, when, when you're feeling good, just in tears, thank you, God, for healing my body and bringing me through that trial. 
Religious activity does not equal spiritual significance. And in the day of Amos, in the late 1960s, and even today in our day and age, there are a lot of people who are spiritual, but they are far away from God. And then this is the big one, if you're taking notes. Number three, the nation was affluent, but they were selfish with their wealth. This is perhaps the biggest and most important lesson out of the book of Amos. And it's probably the point of the song that we looked at today, Fortunate Son. I mean, Fogarty would go on to say, hey, what's happening is that those who have affluence are using it selfishly to protect their kids from what other kids are being subjected to. You're a fortunate son. Israel had become wealthy. I mean, very, very wealthy, but they were not obeying God with their wealth. I I need you to hear me today. They were wealthy. They they were blessed. God had done something. I mean, if you think about this moment in history, I mean, the nation had come from nothing. I mean, barely an assembly of people under David. And then under David, God amasses wealth enough to build the temple. He passes it off to Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. And under his wisdom, the kingdom becomes affluent. But instead of pivoting to use their affluence to make a difference around the world. The Bible says as we were reading through Amos chapter 3, all they did was plunder the blessings of God and rake them into their fortresses. Now you might be sitting here saying, but this doesn't, this ain't me. I'm not wealthy. And every once in a while I just feel like I have to I have to bring us to a point of self-correction when it comes to that notion, okay? So that we can understand where we personally sit, every person in this room, when it comes to that phrase, am I wealthy? The average income in Stanley County, you can take the 85-year-old lady who's living on Social Security all the way down to the 16-year-old kid working part-time at Food Line. The average income per capita per person in Stanley County is $26,000 a year. Now, some of you are like, I have no idea how a person would live on $26,000 a year. That's the average. And based on what we know about the wealth distribution in the world. If that's your income, if that's where you are today, you are in the top 7% of the wealth in the world. Which means if we pulled in a random sampling of 100 people from around the world, there would be six or seven people wealthier than you out of the 100. And the truth is, many of you are way above average. I started thinking about, you know, what is a, a professional career that many of us would say, just consensus, they're underpaid. And one of them, I, I think we would consensus say that teachers are underpaid, okay? 
It's important. Teachers need to be paid well. Thankful for our teachers who make a difference. It's a professional career. Requires quite a bit of, you know, giftedness and service. So what if we took a teacher, no local supplements, no bonuses, no national boards, no master's pay, just two teachers who have been teaching for 10 years and combine their income in a dual-income family, what would their wealth look like compared to the rest of the world? If that were you, two incomes, 10-year teachers, you would be in the top 1% of wealth in the world. Top 1%. Which means, random sampling of people from all over the world, if you walked into a room of 100 people, there might be one person who is more wealthy than you. And I know that some of you are looking at me like I'm an idiot. Like, there's no way that's real, Kevin. Until you go on a mission trip and you walk into a community like we do when we go to Honduras. You come face to face with thousands of people who are living on less than $2,000 a year. One of our teams last January walked into a house where they have a 12-year-old daughter. It's my daughter's age. And they had to decide, this is no joke, daughter gets sick with a curable disease that's going to require medicine. And they had to decide, will we buy the medicine or buy food? And that's the way the majority of the world that we live in lives. So in the face of this book and the message of Amos, I need you to hear this. You are the wealthy. You are. I am. We are the wealthy. And that's a blessing, but it requires us to have the right heart. Jesus was speaking on that in Matthew 6. He said, you can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. And then he says this, you can't worship God and money both. Now, please listen to me because this is going to mess some of you up. Replace the word worship with respond because that's what worship is. Worship is our response to God. And he says, listen, you can't respond to two gods. One's going to end up calling the shots. And the one that ends up calling the shots, you're going to end up having disdain for the other one, contempt for the other one. And what does he say? You can't worship God and money both. Again, replace the word worship with respond. I can't respond to both God and money. Why is that important today? Because listen to me, I think culturally, the most dominant, prevalent, guiding question for us is not, does God call me to this? It's, can I afford it? Can I afford to go on that vacation? Can we afford this house? Can we afford that car? Can we afford to go out to eat? Not, what has God called me to do? Which 
puts our hearts on exposition as it shows that what we're responding to is not God, it's money. In Amos, God has blessed his people. I mean, they are prominent and affluent. And multiple times he showed up to rescue them and correct them, but they've remained stubborn and selfish and sinful. And he's done. Amos is prophesying the coming judgment that will come as Assyria comes down from the north and obliterates the northern kingdom. And then the Babylons come in from the east and obliterate both the Assyrians and the southern kingdom. And this should be sobering for us. Because it could be us. Amos is nothing but a shepherd. I mean, the opening line tells us who he was. But he is chosen by God to deliver a message of extreme judgment. As a matter of fact, most scholars believe that Amos himself did not curate the book that we call Amos. It was Ezra years later because they looked back and they were like, he was right. He got it right. And nobody believed him. Nobody saw it. And they took the writings and put them together. I want to make two observations from his message. And the first one is that God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. Leave that up there because I need to explain two words in there. Righteous means he gets it right. Unlike us who never get it right. We will always be selfish and biased. As a matter of fact, before God, the only way we're ever righteous is because the righteousness of Christ is taken from Christ and imputed to us. I am right before God because Jesus got it right for me. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. He's the only one who could be the righteous judge. He gets it right. I was reading C.S. Lewis reflection on the Psalms this past week and he says you know when it comes to God as judge many of us as Christians the only image of God we have is I broke the law and God is handing down the judgment but he said you know in the history of the world most people didn't have access to a judge the only way you could have a case heard was to know somebody bribe somebody in our Western culture, that's so foreign. So God is judge. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you read through the Psalms, and every once in a while, the Psalms will say, your, your judgments are wonderful, O God. And Lewis said, listen, for, for Jews, it, it wasn't often that they were the one who was on trial. They were the plaintiff. And God, through his justice, was making right something that was wrong. That's what he's doing in his judgment. God, as judge, in his justice, is making right 
something that is wrong. In Amos, this is really harsh. Beginning in chapter 1, you see these, these words, I will send fire on the house of Hazul. Fire. And it's, I mean, read through the first three chapters. It's that family and that family and that family and that community and that community. And it's just fire, 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 fire. Now, fire is used in the Old Testament as a picture of God's judgment. That's why when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, God judges them and then they're destroyed in a fire. What's kind of interesting is this week news came out that there's an archaeological dig in Jordan where they believe, kind of the area of where Sodom and Gomorrah, and they believe that they found evidence that there was a meteorite that struck that area that gave off literally what would have been a, a bigger explosion than a nuclear bomb. That's how big it was. See, fire is both a destructive and a purifying element. It's both destructive. House fire will burn the whole house down. But it's purifying. It's used to purify gold, to burn up all the impurities in gold or in silver. And while God's judgment on the world is destructive, the goal for his people is not destruction, it's discipline. So when God judges his people, it's not punishment, it's discipline, it's not punitive. That's what punishment is. I want you to feel that you got that wrong. Discipline is I want to correct you so that you'll get it right. And some of us are going, I have no idea how to figure out what the discipline of God is in my life. So let me just help you. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12, and you might be saying, I don't know when God is disciplining me. It just feels like this is difficult or this is tough. And Hebrews 12, 7 says this, endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as his child. And this simply means when I go through something that's hard and difficult, I can interpret that as the discipline of God. Having a hard time with your kid? Endure hardship as discipline. Having a hard time emotionally? Endure hardship as discipline. Having a hard time with your health? Endure hardship as discipline. And some of you are, I, I know where some of you are. You know, why would God allow that? Why? Literally, the verse before this answers that question. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. I mean, it doesn't take too long being around a family that doesn't discipline their kids to know that what's happening in that child is unloving. Their lack of discipline because of your lack of discipline to them is unloving. It's producing within them behavior that will be detrimental to them in the future. And if we as parents are willing to discipline our kids because we love them. How much more would our heavenly father? This is literally a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. In Amos, the people of God have been blessed and exalted, but they've remained sinful and selfish and have chosen to take the blessings of God and use them to curate a comfortable life. 
That's why there's this verse, and if you just read it without that context, it doesn't make any sense. But I want to just help it make sense here in Amos chapter 3. This is what the Lord says, As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. The first picture is the judgment of a lion who devours a sheep. And there's nothing left. A couple of leg bones and an ear. And the second picture is exactly what would happen to the northern kingdom in just a few years. Is that the Assyrians would come in and absolutely obliterate them. Literally take the best and brightest of them, put a fish hook under their jaw, and lead them back to Assyria as slaves. And what does God say would be left behind? A headboard from a bed and a piece of a couch. That's not without intentions. God's saying there will only be fractions of the comfort that you made for yourself left behind. You took my blessings, you co-opted them, and now I'm going to rip them out of your hands. What I meant to pour into your life so that you could bless others, you took it and blessed yourself. And now, because you didn't live open-handedly, I will rip it out of your hands. Which begs the question, what blessings are you holding on to? In your life right now, is it a child? The Bible says that children are as arrows in the hands of warriors. An arrow's useless until you're willing to let it go. Is it money? Is it your time? Is it talent? What blessings are you holding on to? Israel had co-opted the blessings, and God, as righteous judge, pronounces through Amos judgment over them. But I want you to see this. Number two, God will restore those who repent. God will restore those who repent. The beauty of the message of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us to our brokenness and sin. God restores us. Even in the book of Amos, there's the picture of God's restoration. Amos is nine chapters, and towards the end of chapter nine, in verse 11, it says this, I will, rest, I will restore David's fallen shelter. Jerusalem is called the city of David. I'll restore it. I'm going to restore that city. And I will what? Repair its broken walls. So we just got through studying the book of Nehemiah. This is hundreds of years before that. When Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he's fulfilling the prophecy that Amos had made hundreds of years before. In this book, God is promising, listen, there is judgment coming. It's discipline. And it's Intention is to turn your hearts back to God. And in repentance, God is saying, I will restore you. 
I will restore you. I mean, speaking of David, there's a a moment in the life of David. David, who's this incredible man after the heart of God, but then he wanders away from that for a moment as he steals another man's wife. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he has that man murdered. It's an ugly chapter in the life story of David. And the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12 shows up in the court of the king. And he says, David, something has happened in the kingdom that I need you to tell you about. There's a man. He has all these sheep. And then there's one who only has one. And this man who has all these sheep, he had a dinner party and he went to this other man's house and he stole his sheep and he slaughtered it and he prepared it and he served it for his guests. And David stands up. That man must be punished. And Nathan looks at him and says, that man is you. You are that man. And the next moment just wrecks me. 2 Samuel Chapter 12, verse 13, David then said, I have sinned against the Lord. He's moved to repentance. He sees what he's done. And he will spend years dealing with the consequences. But Nathan replied to him, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die in the same moment. When David repented, it took God no time to respond with forgiveness. Immediately, God responds to him. Now today, you might be here and you've held on to the blessings that God has poured out into your life. You've held on and God's blessed you with so many different things. Maybe it's money and, and, and time and Maybe it's for you, it's giftedness. And, and instead of living with an open hand, you, you've held on to the blessings that God has poured out in your life. I want you to think about this question today. What do you need to repent of and release into God's purposes? Maybe you've held on to your, your kids. These are my kids. Maybe you've held on to your money. Instead of asking God, what do you want me to do with the money you've blessed me with? You you continue to ask yourself, what am I going to do with my money? Maybe it's your time. You've been stingy with your time. This is my time. Maybe it's your talent. Whatever it is, what do you need to repent? God, I've held on to this. I've been closed-fisted. I haven't haven't been open-handed in that area. I need to release that to you, God. See, the thing is, it's God's anyway. All the money came from God. The kids came from God. The relationships came from God. He gave it to you. If you hold on to it, it'll be painful when God has to pry it out of your hand. But, But if you'll let go, repenting for trying to hold on, then God can forgive you right where you're at today. And then God can also use it for His intended purpose. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. 
For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.